Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. You don't just live in your home, you live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, transportation, local amenities, cultural attractions, unique qualities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Please be advised, the following episode contains references to violence and may not be suitable for all audiences. Welcome to Veterans You Should Know, a podcast from iHeartRadio that celebrates the men and women who have honorably answered a call to serve their country in the armed forces. I'm Rob Riegel, actor, comedian, and former Marine. Oh, In this special series honoring Veterans Day, I'll be speaking with four incredible veterans as they detail challenges they've faced and how their experiences in military service serve them in their everyday civilian lives. I totally treated it like it was the military, so I, I broke it down and end up graduating in just two years, get that four-year degree done in two years. Thankfully, graduated with honors, I think because it was just so focused. In our final episode of season two, we are speaking with Nishant Roy. Nishant is the first in his family to serve in the U.S. military. He chose to enlist in the Air Force following high school and followed a career path in the security forces. Following his time in the military, he enrolled in St. John's University and finished a four-year degree in two years. Nishant's varied civilian career includes working for the Clinton Foundation, Goldman Sachs, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and the Agency for Internal Development. Nishant currently is the Chief of Staff for the CEO of Chobani. Nishant, welcome to the show. Tell me where you're from, where you grew up, and then tell me how your path crossed with the military. Rob, first off, thank you for your service. And it's truly an honor to be on the show. I appreciate it. So I guess taking it back to 2000, which is when I graduated from high school, I grew up in Long Island, New York. 
in Great Neck. So if you happen to be familiar yes. with the book, The Great Gatsby, yes. uh, it was uh, West Egg. And so I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do coming out of high school. I was a little bit of a jackass during high school. I didn't really take it as seriously as I should have. <laughs> we all were. Yes, we all were. <laughs> I think I barely passed to kind of get it through high school. But ultimately, I've come from an Indian family. And so my, my dad kind of sat me down. He said, well... Where'd you get into school? You got into the community college local and you got into Arizona State. And then uh, what are your choices? Like, what are, what are we going to do here? And so I said, actually, I think I'm not going to do the education piece yet. I think I want to go serve the country. My dad, who immigrated here in 1979 so that he could provide his children a better way of life and not necessarily go through kind of difficult hardships, said, well, okay, what part of that equation is you getting an engineering or PhD or MD? And I said, none of it. You know, I really want to actually go travel the country. I want to pay for college on my own. At that point, it's 2000, so there's no conflicts going on. So my dad said, you know what? All right, I'll indulge this. Let's invite all four branch recruiters into our house and let's have a conversation with each one of them. And we met the Army, Marine Corps, Navy, and Air Force recruiters. I was going in enlisted, so my dad asked really good questions and whatnot. I was gung-ho about actually joining the Marine Corps. You would love that, Rob, I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> my my father said, look, at the end of the day, after having these conversations with these recruiters, I'm actually pretty bullish about either the Navy or the Air Force for you because this focus on education and there's some transferable skill sets that you can kind of apply into the private sector at some point in time. So you have some additional optionality. Uh, absolutely. And Absolutely. Yeah. And by the way, just so you know, my father, very similar. Uh, I, I, he, he wanted to talk to all everybody uh, and actually was like, you know, the Air Force is a pretty good deal here. And, da, 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 da. and, and so I, I understand that as well. But back to your story. So the recruiters come and go and the best salesman out of all of them was the Air Force. Uh, yes, I, I would say <laughs> I would say they kind of checked more of the boxes for sure. for for dad. I was really more just kind of bullish about joining the service. And what planted the seed for me was my grandfather, my father's father. He had actually worked for the British Air Force in India because the Brits had colonized India at one point in time. And so I that kind of planted the seed for me about military service and the structure, the discipline, the ability to travel. Now was my chance to kind of go put this into reality. And so... I said, all right, let's do the Air Force. And I started initially coming in to focus on satellite wideband and telemetry systems. So there, I was supposed to be basically setting up communications in remote areas. Fast forward within my my enlisting time, I basically said, well, I want to do something a little bit more hands-on. You know, enter Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. And they start introducing us to the pararescue team, the combat control team, and so I said, I want to do security forces, actually, and because it's it's the, basically the infantry of the United States Air Force. Yes, and and so that's how I kind of got my entrance into the into the military and how I got into the security forces as a career field. That's fantastic. The security forces in the Air Force are outstanding. They really are very well trained, incredible skill set from a, a war fighting perspective and security perspective, because you're always on the cutting edge of technology and communications and, you know, go down the list of IT possibilities. Air Force is always out there in front, as they should be. They're the most advanced force we have. 
So you find yourself in the security force, you find yourself developing really amazing skill sets, as far as I can tell. Did you ever have an opportunity to, to deploy or, or go forward with all this? I did, actually. Uh, and, and it sounds like uh, reading some of your history, Rob, I think we may have actually overlapped in, in Afghanistan at, at, at some point in time. So Really? 9-11 happens. I'm actually at M60 school in San Antonio, Texas, the, uh, the Godel M60 machine gun. <laughs> we had just completed our full training. We're now deployable. And we got orders to go support an operation in Afghanistan to start to take out some of these camps, the training camps. I believe we got orders around October 7, I want to say, uh, to start engaging in support of the bombing of some of these things. So our, our role in it was to get in, secure the airfield within Kandahar, and later on, make sure the assets, our aircrafts, were secured. And so that's, uh, that was our, our role. And I was on the ground for about three months or so. Oh, wow. So this is the fall of 2001? Yes. Oh, yes. we did. I'm sure we did cross paths then, whether it was going through K2 or, because I was in the north, I was in Masari Sharif, but, um, but uh, there wasn't many, there wasn't a whole lot there in the fall of 2001. We were a very small footprint. Yes. As you can, you remember, uh, now they've got freaking Burger Kings and stuff at these bases. <laughs> Uh, you know, back then we didn't have porta potties. We were still digging our own holes. So, so what was your experience like then? I would say, you know, that deployment first off was eye opening. You know, you train, you train, you train, and then it's a matter of execution. And I remember just almost having a little bit of an outer body experience on that first deployment to Kandahar. I took it so personally, right? Uh, I'm from New York. Uh, why are we in Afghanistan? It's because we got attacked on 9/11. And I couldn't have been more proud to be able to do something. The whole spirit here within the United States was, it's a big call to action. Everybody wants to do something, even if it's supporting your local firehouse, your local uh, police department, anything in the community that you could do to bring us all together. And I couldn't, I was so unbelievably proud to just take the fight to the enemy, having come from New York, because I just took, took it that much more personally. It wasn't just our country that was attacked, it was our city. I'm right there with you. I was in New York on 9-11. I took it very personally. Um, I was in the reserves at the time. I had just left active duty and I'd only been in reserves for a year uh, and volunteered to go back on active duty because of that very same thing. I took it very personally. It felt like a, a, a call. And I just felt lucky that I was in, in uniform and I was in a position that I could go do something about it. The shot completed his second deployment in 2003 to Kirkuk, Iraq. His mission was intelligence gathering and converting an old Iraqi Air Force base into a U.S. Air Force base. When Nishat returned home, he was met with a new set of challenges and obstacles to overcome. But he also found an appreciation for some of the values instilled in him from his time overseas. Was there a takeaway? Was there something where you went, wow, that is a lesson I'll never forget. Um, did you have any moments like that? Did you have any epiphanies like that? I think the big takeaway was, of course, on teamwork and what it means, right? You, you, you say what you're going to do, and then you do what you're actually going to say, and you don't actually necessarily see that in the civilian sector, as you were saying. And that's a point of frustration. But when I came back, I was frustrated at the fact that, that folks were saying that they were going to do things. They had a more kind of a political lens to why they were doing it. It wasn't necessarily about the mission. It was about self-preservation, I think, for folks more than anything else. And that was, that's been a bit frustrating still to kind of observe as a behavior. 
And when I came back, I would say I needed to find that mission again because I looked at everything uh, that I was doing in my life as if it was a mission and I had to break it down to its representative objectives. When I did that, it made it far, made the integration back to civilian life far more digestible, if you will. <laughs> yeah, and you're you're so right too because I, I talk to so many veterans and I hear the same thing uh, in different ways, but I hear the same themes, and some of those themes are, you know, they they miss having a mission, they miss the purpose, they miss the integrity of the communication. You know, if I say if I say to you we're going to do something. You can pretty much count that we're going to try to do this thing. We understand our roles. We understand our responsibilities. We understand the team, the bigger picture. We understand serving the mission. So we're going to find ways to make it happen. We're going to adapt. You know, if that means I got to do something different or that, we'll we'll find a way and we'll get the mission done. And it was service to this bigger purpose. You hit on something that reminded me of three things that I just still live by today. And it's been ingrained in me since my time in service. Uh, The Air Force has three core values. And I would imagine it's got to be somewhat similar across all the different branches. But it's integrity first, it's service before self, and it's excellence in all we do. It sounds hokey, of course, to say those things. But how do you actually live those values out is a very different story. And, you know, coming back into civilian life, was initially challenging because of the reasons that we said earlier. And my integration back became frustrated for that very reason. I think I found myself to be pretty angry for no good reason. I was telling this to you know friends earlier, but something as harmless as like playing video games with my younger brother. He was cheating and, uh, or maybe <laughs> he was beating me. I don't know. <laughs> younger brothers, they always find a way to cheat. They know some code or some <laughs> trick. Uh, I hear you. I remember getting so upset with him that I got up, threw the controller down, and I punched a hole in the door. And I'm like, whoa, that was not a commensurate response to a video game. And I remember at that point, I was like, okay, I need to go start seeking some counseling. I need to start having some conversations with some folks because that's that's a flag for sure. So I, I started to reach out to the VA. I started to reach out to a couple of other, uh, like Wounded Warrior Project and a few other um, folks. I wasn't necessarily taking it seriously in terms of the follow-up. And then another day, I found myself at a Rite Aid, CVS, something like that. So I, I'm on my way to, to check out. And somebody literally comes over from my right side. And for whatever reason, not logical at all, Rob. Like this person, I, I think of them as trying to go after my pistol that's on my thigh, which clearly I do not have a pistol on my thigh. And I grab that person's hand, I put them in an armbar and I put them down. And I caused such a scene. I'm like, yep, we're not going to do this anymore. We need to ta- start taking counseling very, very seriously. And so uh, I started to talk to folks through the VA and it's it was it, it was a process for a while. I feel so much better for having done it. And thankfully, in the spectrum of, you know, what they diagnose as post-traumatic stress disorder, which is like a big tent of whatever, I would say that's like the lowest grade, you know, in terms of what other folks may be going through. And so that was a tough part of the the integration back. But then connecting, reconnecting with the folks that I had served with who came from all over the country, all economic classes, talking about that experience made it actually easier for all of us in terms of our integration back into society. Completely. Um, so that was that was helpful 
I'm glad you brought that up, though, because it, it is critically important. And it's, it's one of the reasons we're you know talking today is because, again, the veterans that I've visited with, yourself included, you know, when they get home uh, and they are experiencing these things, they don't understand. They don't like, why am I why am I willing to get out of my car and punch this guy? Because I perceive that he cut me off. You know, maybe he just didn't see me. Maybe, I don't know, but there's a rage level that's inexplicable. You just can't understand it. And then then you start to question yourself and you start to panic and you start to think, what's wrong with me? And, uh, and then the worst case scenario, you isolate. That's where veterans get into so much trouble is when they isolate and they think I'm the only one with this problem. There's something wrong with me. Why can everybody else deal with it and I can't? And it, it snowballs and it's terrible. So the VA and other organizations, great for being able to just go talk to someone. And when they, when you hear their stories, you're like, oh, I'm not a freak. I'm not weird. I'm not, you know, this is happening across the spectrum and talking about it's a good thing and recognizing it like you did, being able to say that wasn't proportionate. Uh, I need to talk to somebody. You know, I'm, I'm proud of you for being able to say I need to talk to somebody because a lot of people say, oh God, something's wrong with me. And then, God forbid, they start self-medicating or any of that other garbage. Being able to talk to someone else and realize, oh, no, I'm, you know what, these, it's it's almost like when you learn about the steps of grieving. You know, there's five steps to the grieving process. And once you learn them, you're like, oh, well, that explains this, this, and this. And, and it actually makes sense to you and you're able to deal with it better. And I think that's what you're describing with your outreach and your connection with these veterans organizations. And that's huge for our audience to hear that because I, that's, if nothing else, I hope they take that away that if they are ever feeling this way, if they go talk to someone, they might not be so lonely on this. If there's so many of us that have kind of gone through such traumatic experiences and you may not even view it to be traumatic because we're so machismo, but uh, there's no harm in, of course, talking to somebody that actually could probably understand it better than other folks in the civilian world. I think that was you know, it's part of our frustration, obviously, right? Coming back into civilian life is, how do I articulate this in words, uh, that experience? I don't want to talk about feelings. It's not about I, it's about a team. You've always been serving in a team. It's uh, it's odd to be kind of talking about one individual and, and that that yourself. Or, or if you're talking to a, a wounded service member who's got been, you know, drastically wounded, uh, catastrophically wounded, you know, you feel like, well, my, my experience doesn't rate any attention when I see these catastrophically wounded troops. So then you you tend to clam up and go back in your shell when the truth is, is your experience is just as valid. You just need to talk about it so you can work the process and get through it. I want to ask you something that, you know, may be difficult, I don't know, but uh, to talk about, but there was a time when you lost your vision. Yes. Take me, if you would, from the beginning to the end. How did it evolve? I mean, what was the diagnosis? What was going on in your mind as this was unfolding for you? I still get a little bit choked up about this. But um, so I had just come back from uh, service in Iraq, uh, moved back home to New York, living with my folks. I enrolled at St. John's. I'm taking some classes online. And one day I start to see that my my vision in my right eye starts to start to go. So I had 2015 vision, remarkable vision. Yeah. And what was happening was is that there was, um, it looked like basically whatever was in front of me looked like it was three houses over or something like that. It looked like pretty far away. 
And it was happening to one eye pretty dramatically. And my dad was like, you're just, you know, you're going out to the clubs too much and smoking too much uh, shisha and stuff like that. And I said, no, I, this is for real. This is uh, something that's going on and uh, I don't know quite what to do. So I thought rest would make it a little bit better. So I let a little bit more time elapse. Then I start to lose it in my other eye. And I finally tell my dad, I said, either you're going to take me to the hospital or I'm going to call a cab or I'm going to walk and take myself. But I need to get to the hospital ASAP because something's wrong here for sure. Uh, I get to the hospital. The doctors didn't know how best to diagnose it. They start running all these different scans. At one point, I think the consensus was is that I had multiple uh, sclerosis, MS. And at that point, I'm just devastated. But, you know, keep as much composure as possible because it's just a diagnosis for now. The more time that's elapsing, the worse my vision's getting. And the next day, I'm lucky enough to get an appointment to go see this retina specialist in Great Neck. Shout out to Dr. Jeffrey Shaken, who's remarkable. It took him some time, too, to actually figure out what was going on. He said, this is a rare condition, but it's called Void Koinagi Hirata. It's named after the three scientists that studied it. And I don't think I've seen this since I was in med school. And this, mind you, this guy was like 70 or so. He says, Nishanth, uh, this is, if not treated, what ends up happening with this thing is your retina is detached. Yeah, so you go completely blind. And your, your hair follicles, they all turn white. And then you start to lose your hearing. So he said, it's good you're here now. They start to run a vision test. And I remember my dad being next to me. And my dad's a pretty stoic guy. And um, he definitely never likes to project uh, any sort of kind of vulnerabilities because we'd gone through so much in our childhood. I mean, I didn't even get into the fact that mom wasn't around and all these other things. But he's a, he's a pretty well-composed guy. And he I hear him break down a little bit. He starts to, he starts to cry because... Um, they literally put a license plate in front of my face. I couldn't tell you what letters or numbers or anything like that. He's like, my God, what happened? And thankfully, they put me on this kind of high dose, I think, of like prednisone or something like that. And for about two months, I, I didn't have strong vision at all. I think my vision when they did that test was about 2,800. So literally, that license plate, I couldn't tell you a single letter or number that was on there. At that point, I kind of took the, I felt like I'd taken so much of, for granted with my own vision. I think for the first time in my life, I had a panic attack. I don't think I'd ever had a panic attack before in my life, despite all of the, the, the crazy and fun experiences that I've been through to date. This was the first time where I felt like, oh my gosh, I need to work on my breathing. I need to get my composure back, get regain that perspective so that I can kind of continue. But that, that was uh, a big, that was a big, um, Big moment for me. And and I, I assume, I don't want to assume anything, but I, it, it appears that you have had a full recovery. I have had a full recovery, thankfully. I wanted to, you know, look at this almost from like a military perspective. Like, what's my after action here? What what happened? What's the diagnosis? What's the root cause analysis? I go to the doctor and said, what, you know, what, what happened here? How do I prevent this from ever happening again? And, you know, what 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 was the cause of all this? And so... He said, look, the only thing I could speculate, because this is a rare eye condition that's, if, if at all prevalent, it's within the Japanese community. And, uh, you know, I haven't done a 23andMe, and I, I know I don't have any Japanese ancestry, but he said the only other thing that could be is that 
you had exposure potentially to some sort of kind of chemical warfare or those sort of elements, it makes a ton of sense because you spent a year in theater in Iraq in the hometown of the guy who ran the chemical warfare program. You know, who knows? Who knows? I still don't know to this day exactly what the cause was, but the retina specialist is pretty bullish on the fact that it was something that we were potentially exposed to when we were over there. My body reacted to it um, in some, you know, over a period of time. Uh, but thankfully, thing it's in remission now, and uh, I do constantly monitor, um, you I know, what's, what's going on with the vision. But um, yeah, one of the scariest moments of my life, for sure. Uh, it had to be. It had to be. I, I, you know, you talk about that fear, that anxiety, and that panic attack, and I hate that feeling because uh, I, I know it, and uh, it's a terrible feeling. So I, I can empathize, especially when you're faced with the possibility of losing your sight out of the blue. You're going through life, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, you're being threatened with that. That's a, a tremendous thing to overcome. Stay tuned for more of Nishant's story after the break. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb. Tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Welcome back to Veterans You Should Know. You have this uh, diverse background. You worked for domestic policy, right, as an analyst for Goldman Sachs. You worked in the uh, U.S. Agency for Internal Development. I got to know what that is. And you work now, currently, for Chobani. And you're the chief of staff for the CEO. So you're the the aide-de-camp. Exactly. uh, uh, But even higher than that, you're the chief of staff. So... You're really getting a, a, a probably one of the greatest seats in the world as far as learning and understanding leadership. Like that is 
one of the great grooming positions to be in to become a leader. Hello, Mr. President. So uh, that's why I keep saying it because you're bound for leadership. So tell us about that. Tell us about your civilian side. So I I come back uh, to civilian life around 2005 and I am behind the ball, if you will, from my peers. They had each gone off to college and now they're in the workforce in New York City and they're earning. So I said, okay, I need to catch up and I need to catch up fast because I need to make some money. Uh, (laughs) I need to get my degree. Uh, So I go off to, I enroll at St. John's University. Thank God they are so uh, thoughtful about supporting folks that are returning from service. I ended up going there for free, basically. Love to hear that. They they are a remarkable institution. At the same time, I said, I'm still missing this kind of mission aspect of things. And I still want to break it down to its representative parts again. And so I hear uh, President Clinton speak and he's talking about setting up this foundation and it's focused on international as well as domestic and, and those sorts of things. And so I was like, wow, this is this is pretty remarkable stuff this guy's doing and it's here in New York. And I happen to be available on nights and weekends. I wanna enroll in as many classes as possible so I can catch up to my peers and at the same time work for this guy in whatever capacity I can work in and keep that mission going. So I end up working on looking at gentrification issues actually within New York City. One of the things I think that President Clinton and others have gotten flack for is like, hey, he set up his office in Harlem and folks said, hey, that's the reason that gentrification happened in, in, uh, in Harlem, when in reality, like economic livelihoods were actually just increasing in all across the, the country. And folks were moving up to places like Harlem and unfortunately pushing out existing businesses. So. What I got to do was actually sit in on some of these smaller businesses, understand their baseline metrics. I got to work with a couple of consulting firms and we started to put together some plans to support those local and small businesses. So that's how I got to start to get this flavor of domestic policy and what it means to support businesses and and whatnot with President Clinton. In parallel, going to college, end up graduating in in just two years, get that four-year degree done in two years. Fantastic. I totally treated it like, like it was the military. So I, I broke it down and thankfully graduated with honors, uh, I think because it was just so focused. And I got to travel a ton with President Clinton in the process too, which was, which was awesome because whatever your political leanings are, the guy is brilliant. I mean, just brilliant. Yeah. He, he yeah. can have a full conversation with you, be fully engaged while kind of quickly looking over his notes and deliver, enough to deliver a two hour long speech about being a farmer, which you know, he's never been, but he can yeah. he can talk about being a farmer as if he's been a farmer his entire life while still having a full-fledged conversation with you. And so working with him was pretty remarkable because he's like, I see, Nishant, that you are pretty motivated to want to go off and do big things. I would love for you to do it with the, within the foundation. And now that you've graduated from college, you know, what are, what are you thinking, you know, post-graduation? And I said, well... I'm thinking about just taking that job at the foundation. He said, why don't you forget the job at the foundation or forget anything else? Why don't you think about going into engineering school or to law school? I said, President Clinton, I've just worked my tail off to get my four-year degree done in just two years. With all due respect, I have no desire to go work on another degree. My peers are earning money. Everyone's living a good life. I don't know if I want to go do this. Had he been talking to your dad or something? Like, how did this... (laughs) (laughs) 
I think they, they may have been. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so he says, he says, he goes, Nishant, you have far more life experience than your peers do. I think getting a degree like an engineering degree or a law degree, it forces you to think outside the box in terms of problem solving. And that's what you need in leadership. And that's what you need when you reach the highest ranks of government or highest ranks of of uh, the not-for-profit sector or even business. I was like, look, I hear you loud and clear, but I want to just go and make some money. So he brought in this guy, Bob Harrison. Bob used to run the Clinton Global Initiative and Bob used to be a partner at Goldman Sachs. He's like, you got to think about what does the public sector actually need? It needs to understand how to create sustainable programming and understand what a bottom line actually looks like. And so these are all fungible skills. You need to learn that in the private sector. What better training ground than Goldman Sachs? And you can transition off into the public sector at some point in time if you decide to in the future. What was the time frame? Was this 2008 or 2007? What was so when 2007. And so right about the time the shit was hitting the fan, so to speak, financially. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, God. Okay. I'm now thinking about wh- whether or not this Goldman Sachs move is the right one. And then finally, I think the, the main key thing that kind of drove it home for me was President Clinton and Bob both say, look, if, if not for nothing, you make some money, you learn something. And the beautiful thing is that they work in small groups. And so just like in the military, you're working in small teams and you're working on execution. And that's what these guys are highly focused on. But yeah, financial crisis comes uh, 2008 and every bank across Wall Street starts laying off a bunch of folks to deal with that crisis. I'm low on the totem pole. And they said, well, guess what? Your responsibility just increased by 3x because we're... We've gotten rid of a couple of folks. Uh, and thankfully, you know, a firm like Goldman, they have remarkable training, remarkable leaders, folks that have gone on to become secretaries of treasury and ambassadors sure. and so forth. Yeah. So I felt like I was well equipped, well, you know, trained to kind of go execute in the midst of what was, you know, what do they call it? The greatest recession since the Depression. Later, Nishant would go on to earn his MBA degree. One day, he received a call from his friend with a job offer. Come work at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Without any background in agriculture, but plenty of applicable life experience, Nishant joined the USDA's chief scientist in the Division of Research, Education, and Economics. His boss was then nominated to run the U.S. Agency for Internal Development. It's the arm of the government that focuses on humanitarian assistance around the world. Nishant followed his boss into this new agency. His first week on the job, the earthquake in Haiti happened, and Nishant found himself boots on the ground helping organize the relief response. Nishant's resume is a list of fearless career moves. Today, he is the chief of staff to the chief executive officer of Chobani. If you were to look at my resume, it's like a hodgepodge of things. And you're like, what is the, how do I thread this all together? And I would say this experience, working with the founder and CEO of Chobani, is a kind of a culmination of it all in in some thoughtful kind of packaged role. What I really identified, you know, with Hamdi, who's the founder of the business, is that he's a small business guy. You know, he, he came from Turkey, immigrated here in 1994. He came here just to learn English. He ends up getting a small business administration loan and only has about $3,000 or so in his pocket. 
starts learning English a little bit, starts creating this cheese business, turns it into something that we all, you know, enjoy today, which is Chobani. It's a, it's a remarkable brand. I saw so many elements of my own family in him. So if he were to actually come in here right now, he'd probably call me brother before he says anything because we actually truly uh, treat each other like we're family. That's fantastic. More than anything, outside of just the phenomenal products and so forth, what Hamdi kind of stands for, outside of his like origin story and how he got here to the States and, and built the brand, what he stands for today is he's the antithesis of a lot of the CEOs that he saw growing up. He said, look, business should be uh, a force for good. It should be a force for change, positive change in communities. We want to do what's good for the customer. And then we also want to do what's good for the communities in which we operate. You seem to find purpose and mission in everything you do. Tell us about your mission uh, with Chibani. Uh, tell us about uh, why that's important to you. Uh, Chibani is a pretty unique place. It, uh, you know, We don't have a corporate social responsibility type of department within the company itself. The whole company, from the lowest levels to the highest levels, they kind of always want to do what's right for the community. And so... The mission for us is always delivering delicious, nutritious, natural, and accessible food. So we follow this acronym using our military world, uh, DNNA. And uh, the accessibility part of it became front and center for me, You know, particularly during the pandemic. We turned our cafe into a food bank. We structured different partnerships to kind of get our products into food banks across the country. A lot of great companies came across and decided to go support delivering food. There was so much food insecurity, actually, which was so surprising to see during the pandemic. So it was pretty awesome to be a part of a company that thinks about food, not only for just like our specific customers, but for the entire country. So it's that acronym of delicious, nutritious, natural, accessible is like kind of like what's the mission and delivering, getting that food out there. That's a really great mission. I I can see why you wanted to get on board with it. I, I would say one other thing, though, that yeah. Hamdi is very much focused on is refugees. And so 30% of our workforce here at Chibani is composed of immigrants and refugees. In fact, I think at one point in time, we had maybe like 19 translators in the plant helping refugees kind of get integrated into supporting the mission of uh, developing our, our yogurt products up in upstate New York because we had totally employed everybody in one town. We said, what's the next town over? They said, it's Utica. Utica's got this big refugee population. Uh, and they said, but Hamdi, they don't really speak English that well. He's like, great, I don't speak English that well either. We'll bust them over and we'll get translators and we'll train them how to do the job. So where I get to kind of come full circle now is this country is a wonderful place for opportunity. And you have the refugee cap that's now since risen. And we're now also supporting folks that served in uniform with us in Afghanistan. Uh, so the special immigrant folks that came over are coming over to this country with a special immigrant visa. Yeah. They're looking for opportunities. They're looking for jobs. And so Hamdi's got a foundation called the Tent Foundation. Uh, and Chibani is one of the anchor kind of businesses that's supporting the Tent Foundation in terms of employing those refugees in uh, Chibani and other businesses across the country. I love that. I really, really love that. That that to me is fulfilling promises and keeping our word uh, as a nation. So your commitment to uh, veterans is pretty clear. Uh, your your commitment to this country is obvious. What are some ways that you stay connected uh, to the veteran community? The military is such a big part of my life in terms of shaping who I was and creating that structure. I wanted to figure out 
what's the best way to kind of engage and help some of these veteran service organizations give back to the community? And so I said, well, how, how can I be a, a thought partner for them? So I took a few approaches. One was I had this transition out of the military to go into the private sector, and I had my learning experience when I was looking at those different bios and so forth. And so I said, I could be a mentor to folks. And so I started serving as a mentor to veterans that were leaving the service to help them figure out how they can come up with their game plan to go join the private sector. The other way that I did it was actually with Shabani itself. One day I was sitting down with our founder and CEO and I said, hey, this has been a big part of my life. I would love more than anything to kind of give back. And he said, well, what are you thinking? I said, well, why don't we use the power of the brand to go support other NGOs that are supporting uh, veterans. And so the other piece of it was on housing. So there's an, a beautiful, wonderful NGO called the Operation Homefront. We ended up structuring a partnership with them at Chobani and we created a red, white, and blue yogurt actually. So every dollar that you buy of the Operation uh, Homefront SKU uh, goes to go support veterans getting homes. So that was another way in which to kind of stay engaged and support the veteran community. And then finally, I, I looked at IAVA uh, and I said, well, how can how can I help those? One, one of their commercials that they had was super powerful. And I don't know if you remember this one, Rob, but it was a veteran that's in the middle of, uh, I want to say Madison Square Park. He's walking, he's alone. And then he goes to shake another veteran's hand. And all of a sudden, everything kind of comes to life. And... Uh, I said, well, I can continue to also serve as an advocate, a mentor for folks that are kind of coming out of military service and help them also with their jobs. So I looked at two different VSOs to go help them with the job integration. VSO is for those listening at home? Veteran Service Organization. Veterans. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, our acronyms, you know, we, I don't want to lose anybody. I want them to stay with us on this because <laughs> that, that's amazing. That's the kind of work that I don't know. I love hearing about it. I think there's probably, I think the last I heard there was something crazy like 50,000 registered uh, veterans organizations. And I think I've met with all of them um, oh for one reason or another. You know, they want me to be a spokesperson or do something. And and I listen to their missions and they're they're always amazing. But to hear when these organizations are supported by corporate America or supported by other resources that can make their missions come true, help them fulfill what they set out to do, to me is uh, one of the most honorable things in the world. So thank you. Thank you so much for continuing to keep that bridge open between the civilian and the veteran community. I will just add one thing, though, to it, uh, Rob, is... Uh, a lot, of, a lot of us that you know have served in uniform. Nobody wants a handout, uh, right? And I would say a lot of these veteran service organizations are structured in such a way that they're just providing you the tools. They're not necessarily handing everything you onto you with a silver platter. So you're not being spoon fed. These are great institutions that are out there, and I'm so happy that it's grown to be you know over fifty thousand. I love that too, and I'm I'm with you. I think most of the the at least the organizations I work with are designed to give you tools and skills so that you can be a self-sustaining uh, individual, so that you can go out there and succeed. Exactly. Nishant, thank you so much uh, for spending time with us and, and talking to us and telling us your story. Uh, it's a remarkable one. I can't wait to hear what you're going to do next as far as uh, whether you're going to continue to 
develop in the private sector or if you're going to become president of the United States. I, it, it's whatever you want. Although right now, being president of the United States, tough job, real, real tough job. Nobody, real tough job. <laughs> there's nobody, <laughs> nobody's winning that one right now. So, uh, but whatever you do, just keep being a leader because uh, that's what this country needs. So thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure meeting you. Thank you, Rob. I really appreciate being on the program and uh, thank you for doing what you've done in terms of your service to the country. Ah, my pleasure. I want to thank Nishant Roy again for joining me on today's podcast. I am beyond impressed with his drive and his career, and I cannot wait to see what new role in industry he decides to tackle next. Who knows? Maybe it'll even be a run for the Oval Office. Thanks for listening to Veterans You Should Know. To hear more inspiring stories of perseverance and camaraderie, Check out all our episodes, including those from Season 1, featuring veterans who have overcome incredible obstacles and found renewed purpose in their civilian lives. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the podcast. We would love to hear from you. You can listen to the show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Veterans You Should Know is a special four-part series from iHeartRadio and hosted by me, Rob Riggle. Our show is written and produced by Molly Socha, Nakia Swinton, and Jackie Perez, with assistance from Quincy Fuller. The show is edited, sound designed, and mixed by James Foster and Matt Stillow.